Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. David Gran has become one of America's leading writers of nonfiction. Having written short pieces for The New Yorker, New Republic, and other magazines, his first book was titled The Lost City of Z, which was adapted into a film in 2017, which now streams on Amazon Prime. Since that time, he has published three books, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, Flowers of the Killer Moon, which will become a film when shooting starts next year, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, and most recently, The White Darkness, about the British explorer Henry Worsley. I had an opportunity to chat with David Gran in 2009 about The Lost City of Z and about his earlier career as a writer. My guest is David Gran, whose book is The Lost City of Z, a tale of deadly obsession in the Amazon, which I guess is not your <laughs> subtitle. Uh, Lost City of Z concerns a true story about a explorer by the name of Percy Fawcett, the search for El Dorado, and the subsequent retracing of Fawcett's steps by the author David Grand. David Grand is a staff writer for the New Yorker magazine, formerly with New Republic. David Grand's mother, Phyllis Grand, is a notable editor, publisher in New York, and we'll go into that in a little bit. David Grand has also written about the Aryan Brotherhood, John McCain, and true crime stories for the <laughs> New Yorker magazine. But this is the first book. That's right. What made you decide to turn this into a book, whereas the Aryan Brotherhood story, or the Polish murderer, how come that didn't make it into yeah. a book? This was the first story where I did research the way I would normally do for a magazine piece. Normally, I spend about three months on a story uh, for the New Yorker, which I guess is pretty long by um, uh, repertorial standards. And usually when I'm done, I feel like I've kind of at least exhausted the material. It doesn't mean there's not places to go, but I feel like I captured the essence of the story. And this was the first time uh, where I did research, and there just simply wasn't places for all the material to go. I had boxes of Victorian letters and diaries, and there's just there's just so much information and so many other uh, avenues. So it was the first time when I finished something where I was not only not exhausted with the subject, I felt like there was so much more to do. The piece that ran in 2005, what's the relationship of that piece to uh, the book? Yeah. The 2005 piece focused very much on my trek into the Amazon retracing his path. And to me, Fawcett and the biography of Fawcett, there just wasn't enough space for that. And his story is just kind of mad. And he is one of these incredibly larger-than-life character. And like I said, it goes back to all those boxes of Victorian diaries and letters. <laughs> David Grant, let's talk a little bit about that. Apparently, you discovered Fawcett while you were researching the death of the world's greatest Sherlock Holmes expert. I was doing research a story 
about it was the leading Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes scholar. He was found dead in very mysterious circumstances. And in the course of that uh, research, I came upon a reference that Percy Harrison Fawcett, this legendary British explorer, who, of course, I had never heard of, had helped inspire the novel, Conan Doyle's novel, The Lost World. And this piqued my curiosity. I'd read the novel. And almost just as a lark, I wasn't even pursuing it as a story. I typed Fawcett's name into one of these historical newspaper databases, ProQuest, uh, which was good because it could go all the way back. And uh, we were, in fact, we were just kind of experimenting with it in the office at the time. So I was like, okay, there's some historical story. I'll check it out. And up came these just outrageous headlines, like Fawcett vanishes into the unknown, another Fawcett search party vanishes. And the headlines, they weren't these little headlines. They were banner headlines in the New York Times and all these other newspapers. So in any case, it just piqued my curiosity. And that's how kind of the ball started rolling. Well, you were still working on the Conan Doyle story. Okay, you finished that. And then at that point, did you just go to David Remnick and say... (laughs) Hey, boss. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to say Remnick has to be the only uh, magazine editor alive who when you when you go to him and you say, well, I have this story idea. I want to do a story about an explorer who was searching for a lost city in the middle of the Amazon. He says, well, great. So you'll, you'll follow him? And I said, well, no, no. He actually he died. He, he disappeared. I, we don't know what happened to him. He said, oh, so he disappeared a f- couple years ago. And I said, no, actually, almost about 80 years ago. <laughs> and he said, he kind of looked at me and he kind of said, Godspeed. And I, it was really amazing. He, he was either trying to get rid of me or he was indulging my eccentric passions. <laughs> so at that point, he pretty much said to you, David, listen, uh, you're going to go to the Amazon <laughs> and we're going to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, you know, you, you got to imagine I, I'm not the most suited uh, for the jungle. I, there are probably more people on staff who are in better shape than I am. I've got to be the least, one of the least in shape on the, of, all, of all our writers. So uh, from that part, it actually took a while. And, and I should say this, that when I began the story, it began more a writerly quest, a biographical quest where I kind of was looking through archives, which I'm much more suited for. And it was really as I gathered more information that I finally went to him and said, look, I really kind of want to do this. And he he said, okay. The Lost City of Z and a lot of these pieces in The New Yorker seem to be almost this weird crossbreeding nonfiction genre. I look at a book like The Invention of Air, which starts off you know, with the story of Joseph Priestley and turns into this meditation on every aspect of, of science or uh, Angels and, and Ages by Adam Gopnik, which starts off just looking at Lincoln and Darwin and then does the same thing. And here we've got in Lost City of Z, you're starting with the story of Fawcett, and then at the same time we've got the disappearance of the Amazon, the history of occultism in Britain at the turn of the uh, 20th century, and the story of this obsessive man, as well as the story of the Royal Geographic Society. Mm -hmm. What do you think is going on in literature about this, or is it just haphazard? You know, I can't so well speak to others, but I know myself, one of the things, and I think it's also what helped kind of make it a book, going back to your question of why not a magazine, there were so many micro-histories. These were all the little subcultures and places to go. So, for example, when I was doing my initial research, I came across the Royal Geographical Society, which you mentioned, and I was like, you know, again, I was very unaware of it. I vaguely had heard the name. And then, you know, it turns out that they had been engaged in this kind of epic quest of mapping the world and served as this finishing school for explorers like Speak and Burn. I just, well, this is this crazy world. And it led to that micro-history. But for me, the thing that made this story so interesting and one of the main reasons I did it as a book, and I try to do this with a lot of my stories, is 
they have a pulp quality. They're engaging stories. This is a little bit almost of a play on the old uh, quest novels of The Lost World and Ryder Haggard. And it's almost a pastiche on them. But I want to use that as a way to work in what I think is kind of an intellectual history that's very interesting rather than just doing the straight history. So in, at least in my case, that was kind of what kind of drove me to go down those paths. When you first discovered Fawcett and you began looking and then uh, David Remnick says, hey, guess what? You're going to go to Brazil. <laughs> After that, at what point did you discover the lost city of Z? And it's in the book, but what is the lost city of Z? Yeah, it really wasn't towards the very end, actually, in my trek. It's a little bit hard in some ways to define the lost city of Z in a totally literal way because it has slightly different incarnations, which I try to get into the book. It is in many ways a, I don't want to say descendant, but the next in the line of El Dorado. And El Dorado had been this uh, mythical kingdom that the conquistadors had first heard of existed in the Amazon. And it was said to be so plentiful in gold that the inhabitants literally ground the metal into powder and they blew it through hollow canes and they were shining from the head to the foot. And this had kind of compelled the conquistadors, driven by greed, for centuries to look for this kingdom in the Amazon, which was supposed to be concealed by the world's largest jungle. Well, Fawcett came along in 1906. Uh, most people by then had concluded that El Dorado was no more than a delusion. Thousands had died of starvation and disease, and no one had ever found any evidence or concrete proof of it. Fawcett came along in 1906, actually from the Royal Geographic Society, on a project of mapping the Amazon. Uh, it was kind of the last blank space on the map. He was sent in, um, actually, Brazil, Peru, and Bolivia didn't even know where the borders were. They sent him in to map the area. And during those years of, of exploring these unknown areas, he began to gather evidence that led him to believe that there really were remnants of an ancient civilization, a sophisticated society in the middle of the Amazon. And he began to gather clues, whether it be from ancient shards of pottery, from listening to tribal legends, and began to draw this portrait of what he believed was the lost city of Z. Now, he believed that the goal from El Dorado was a bit of an exaggerated romance, but he did believe that there really was this great glorious civilization in the jungle. And he named it kind of cryptically, the lost city of Z. I've been in Guatemala, and I guess you have too, <laughs> and we've both been to Tikal. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, he was just looking on the wrong part of <laughs> of America. I, I don't think Tikal had been discovered. Uh, I don't remember what year it had been discovered, mm -hmm. but Tikal is this giant stone city. I mean, you walk in there and you figure you've entered the lost city of the jungle. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of the Mayan ruins were discovered uh, right at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. You know, the thing about the Amazon was it was believed that that jungle uh, was so intense and so ferocious that no complex society could have developed in that region. And because of that, most archaeology, modern archaeologists had kind of ignored the region uh, for years. It was really seen as a counterfeit paradise, this place that despite its flora and fauna was really inimical to human life. And Fawcett concentrated his energies in this in this area, but, he, but the skeptics really dismissed him. He was really seen as a crank. And it's only recently in the last few years that evidence is beginning to emerge that he wasn't necessarily looking in the wrong place. He was actually very prescient. And the, the evidence comes from the fact that even though all of these explorers were starving and dying of various ghastly diseases caused by, <laughs> yeah. by these strange uh, insects and snakes in the jungle, somehow the Indians prospered. They always had food and they were healthy. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that would happen is that people who were unaccustomed to the Amazon, i.e., 
European explorers who were plunging in for the first time. The first El Dorado expedition, some 4,000 men went and some 4,000 men died of disease and starvation. And one of the counterintuitive things that most people don't realize that it seems to, it always astonishes people, in fact, it astonished me, is that you could starve in the Amazon. I mean, you kind of think, well, it's bountiful, there's predators, there's, you, but in fact, starvation is one of the biggest threats to explorers when they come in. And it's because they're really not accustomed to the terrain. The, the soil, because of the competition for so many plants, the soil is often drained and leached of nutrients. So it's very hard to grow crops in many places. And more than that, the predators are just so much more skilled at concealing themselves. So Fawcett was a world-class hunter, and a lot of world-class hunters come in, and they can't find anything to hunt. And what really happens is they're prey rather than predators because they're just not used to the circumstances. Now, the Amazonian tribes and some of these settlements had been there for years, and centri- go back centuries, and had adopted ingenious ways uh, to thrive within their conditions. One of the things they did was they would often um, use the Amazonian floodplains, which are a little bit more, the soil is richer to grow crops, and they would build earth mounds to rise up to avoid the leaching process. And they had various ways that were only now beginning, just scratching the surface, beginning to understand, to overcome this notion of a counterfeit paradise. This one where they throw a powder into the into the river and suddenly that that it's kind of like a knockout drops yeah. a whole bunch of fish rise and then they just take them yeah and they still and they still do that today in fact in a lot of the tribes where I went and stayed out on my trip um yeah they have this poison that they put in uh, corners of rivers and it, it knocks the fish out and then they will quickly and the kids use it a lot because and then they just quickly uh, they'll just shoot them with their arrows because they all float up it's what it does is basically like a stunning drug it just stuns all the fish but it doesn't kill them and the amazing thing is when you cook the fish there's no ill effects of the poison the other th- amazing thing about the poison is the fish that are stunned that they don't take then wake up and swim away and are totally fine <laughs> <laughs> In 1986, I, I actually was in the Amazon, Puerto Maldonado, and that region. I was being told at that point that the the loss of the Amazon basin, which was in a bad way at that point, but since then, I guess thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres since 86 have disappeared oh, to yeah. uh, soybean farms yes. and yeah. cattle ranches, that inside the Amazon might be the cures to virtually all our diseases if we'd only look. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that normally when we think of deforestation, um, we think of its effects on climate and we think of the effects on the indigenous population. But one of the more devastating effects is that there are tons and tons of unknown plants and fauna and flora, and a lot of these have medicinal capabilities that are being lost on a regular basis. Some fascinating elements here is that uh, Fawcett went to an explorer's school. (laughs) There was actually uh, the Royal Geographic Society had classes on how to be an explorer. Yeah, I love that when I came across that, that Fawcett... uh, for the Royal Geographic Society really was kind of integral to this period of the Victorian age of exploration and was engaged in this project, which had Im- imperial implications, but of mapping the world, of basically giving maps of all these last blank spaces. And they had funded Livingston and Speak and all these other explorers. And Fawcett had gone there and he was taught how to, quote unquote, become a gentleman explorer. And that involved not just learning how to map make and be a skilled cartographer, but it also had kind of very primitive techniques on surviving in the jungle. And I read the manuals which he was given and which he studied. And they would say things, for example, like 
okay, if you're bitten by a poisonous snake, take your gunpowder, pack it into the wound and ignite it. Or if you're hit by a poisonous arrow and the wound is hemorrhaging, take boiling grease and pour it into the wound. So it gave me some sense of, of what these expeditions were like and just how different it is today. You're listening to an interview with David Gran, whose book is The Lost City of Z. Fawcett went on from there to, as we said before, um, mapping the border of Bolivia and Brazil, kept going back, got caught up in the idea of El Dorado. And then in 1925, after the war, he takes the people he trusts most, being his son and his son's best friend, and the three of them go into the jungle. You follow their path as far as you can, and then they vanish. They're looking for the lost city of Z. Now, one thing that you discover is that his information about the lost city of Z basically led people to the wrong place. So you had all these explorers going in the wrong direction, and you stumbled on what you felt was the correct direction. Question for you then, after 80 years, how come David Grand got it right and all of these hundred <laughs> explorers who died got it wrong? <laughs> well, what happened was Fawcett had been very secretive. Fawcett had actually been a, a British spy. And what was very common back then is the British government would recruit uh, map makers and surveyors to serve as spies because it was the perfect cover to go on and survey places. Fawcett had been a spy before he then went to explore the Amazon, but he always maintained the paranoia of a spy. And he had many rivals at the time who were looking for this ancient civilization. And he was very afraid that someone was going to beat him to his discovery. And so he was very clandestine about his route. And the only clue he had given to his route deep in the jungle in the Mata. We knew he'd gone to the Mato Grosso region. We knew kind of the general area, but, you know, that's still a huge area. And the only specific coordinates he had ever made public were for a place called Dead Horse Camp, where he had shot a pack animal. And most expeditions uh, that had tried to find evidence of him or to save him early on or to find Z had relied on these coordinates for their direction. Well, during the course of my research, more biographical research, I'd gone to England and I had tracked down Fawcett's granddaughter. And no one else had? Well, the family was very private. And it was assumed that Fawcett's papers had been either lost or the family concealed them. And one of the reasons there's never been a major biography written about Fawcett is that these papers would always kept private and they were never released. Now, that generation had passed away and Fawcett's youngest son, who was very scarred by the loss of his brother and the loss of his father, had always kept what, what we, we never knew exactly what it was, but it was kind of considered this kind of mythical treasure of papers, and he wouldn't reveal them to the public. He had died a little while back, and the granddaughter was much more open. And so when I went to see her, she said, you know, do you really want to find out what happened to my grand? father. I said, well, if possible. And she led me into a back room and there was this old chest and she opened up the old chest and inside were all these old books. They were disintegrating and covered in dust. I asked her what they were and she said, well, those are my grandfather's secret diaries and log books. And she let me go through them. And it was while going through them that I discovered this revelation that in his private papers, the coordinates for Dead Horse Camp were significantly different than the coordinates he had released. And the granddaughter confirmed to me that those other coordinates really had been a roost to throw people off the trail. But as, as late as the, the late 80s, this guy Lynch and his son went in. They didn't have this No, they were lying on the wrong coordinates. That's correct. And they didn't go to her? Or? No, no. You know, I don't know why. I mean, she wasn't that hard to find. Uh, but, uh, you know, she was in England. She lived in Wales. I think by then, to be honest, I think 
most people assumed those coordinates were correct. So I don't think there was this sense of saying, oh, okay, those coordinates might be false. Let me go find the real ones. So I don't think there was that compulsion. It was more in the course of my research, really trying to figure out information about Fawcett's life, that I discovered this thing about his root being false. So most people thought, well, we got the root. And the reason you discovered it is because he was afraid of that someone else would find the city. No, oh, that's right. Yeah, no, he was very, um, you know, the Amazon um, had these kind of gigantic egos at the time, all these explorers competing. Even Teddy Roosevelt had gone in a little bit earlier. Fawcett had one rival in particular, a guy named Alexander Hamilton Rice, who was one of the richest men in America. And he would come in, he was searching for an ancient civilization, El Dorado as well. And he would have these incredibly elaborate expeditions with high-tech means. And in fact, he brought in the first early radio, wireless radio into the Amazon. And Fawcett had no money and we're going with like these bare bones, primitive expeditions. So Fawcett was always worried that someone would beat him and, and it kept it secret where he exactly was going. Now you went to England, you did all your research. Was the last thing you did follow the footsteps? Yeah. When I found those coordinates that I kind of said, you know what, maybe I should do something foolish. Like I felt like I really had this piece of information. I said, well, if they all went that way. Maybe if I go this way, what could be there? And then I tried to map out his route as precisely as possible. And I, in fact, I found other things. I found some maps he had drawn and uh, really got a sense of the route he had taken and decided to do it. In the construction of his life and the specific journeys that he went on, it must be pretty hard to create a novelistic sense when you're dealing with real-life materials. I mean, how, do, how did you go about that, and, and how far do you think you stretched it? Obviously, the New Yorker being the New Yorker is going to mm-hmm. you know, immediately draw you back in because they have the best fact, fact checkers. checkers. <laughs> yeah, they really do, and I use them for the book as well. It would have been extremely hard to do, and one of the reasons the book took me a long time, it took me years to do, because I wanted to reconstruct his expeditions as carefully as possible. I was able to uncover, sometimes it took me three full years, all the letters and diaries of both the, not only Fawcett's diaries, but the diaries of his companions. And the money these had, had not been bequeathed to libraries. I would use genealogy charts and track down descendants. And they're really amazing primary resources because they're often, unlike today, <laughs> they really kept diaries and they would write every day, even when they would get to camp, what was happening. One of the interesting things about these diaries is you can actually track their delirium. They start off always with this great romance about their expeditions. And then by the end, they're just, you know, sometimes they're just cataloging bugs and going mad. Um, And even the writing becomes more delirious. And you read things like, today they're discussing camp, whether to abandon me. But, you know, one of the things... I wanted to do was be as vivid a writer as possible, but also be as faithful to what actually was happening. And these diaries were really, it was like having a wiretap. <laughs> was, was there any thought of, of maybe making it a novel? You know, it's funny. When I first became a writer, I had great aspirations to be a novelist and tried and wasn't very good at it. One of the reasons I wasn't very good at it was my imagination would always pale in terms of kind of figuring out what people were doing and saying. For me, that to use novelistic techniques where you have characters and you have story and you don't just say it's not a newspaper story, but to be able to have this material tell me what was happening solved my greatest weakness. So you go down there and there's a fascinating point where the beginning of their trek takes them a month to get through the jungle to uh, a farm. And it took you a few hours because that entire area had been denuded. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the interesting things in following the route was to see how the world changed in 1925. It's not that long. 
I had Fawcett's letters with me. I had made copies of them so I could read them and, and see exactly what he was seeing and see what I would see. And I was reading his letters, and he's describing, I'm in the same exact place he is, and he's describing hacking through wilderness. The forest is so dense. Uh, the third companion is already jaundiced and getting sick and wounded. And uh, his son, who he brought with him, the forest was so dense that they get separated. And I'm reading these letters and looking out, and there's literally nothing there. It looks like Nebraska. And it had all been cut down for soybean farms. You know, when you could see the forest, what there was was just burnt stumps. I mean, it really was. Uh, it was incredibly shocking. And one of the interesting things is when you move deeper into the wilderness, the forests that are best preserved um, are the areas that are under indigenous control. And I was moving into tribal lands. And these areas function almost as countries within a country. You can't just wander onto their territory. Even though they're part of Brazil, they are... They have their own tribal rules and councils, and they defend their territory fiercely given the bloody history of the contact. What was interesting is when you move deeper into the jungle, it's these areas where the wilderness is, is really preserved. But getting to them, it's astonishing what's, what's happened. It's funny. There's a point where you kind of got lost and got a sense of what it was like to be alone in the jungle. The Amazon is, is gigantic. I mean, I think sometimes people, I certainly had no idea. It's, the Amazonian wilderness is about the size of the United States. So we're dealing with a gigantic area. And if you're lost in the wilderness, you know, if you're faucet, you know, you'll read the stars, you'll figure out what you're doing, you'll hack maniacally. If you're a weaker man uh, or just human, or if you're someone like me who really has very little experience, I mean, it really is deadly. I mean, you, there are so many things one needs to worry about, um, not just the predators, but food. For me, when I was there, it all kind of looks the same. And you just keep marching and marching. I mean, one of the things about the Amazon, people ask me, well, was it surprising? Well, or did it, was it disappointing? Well, one of the things that kind of happens in the Amazon is there's a certain monotony to it. I mean, you, you just track and you track and there's vines and there's trees and there's mangroves. And it's like, you know, you just keep going. And so <laughs> when I was lost, I just kept going and going and, you know, nothing changes. You, you know, you keep, you know, when you're kind of lost in the Somewhere else, you kind of come around the turn and you say, oh, well, there's the building or something. But there's nothing there. You just keep going and the, and the wilderness keeps going. You know, I kept trying to find the path and I had entered kind of a, a swampy area. And uh, what often happens in these areas where there could, in theory, be a path because of the rains and the floods, any evidence of a path vanishes. And then you finally wind up with Indians who give you a story about what happened um, based on what they heard from their uh, grandparents. Um, and the, the village itself has television. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, that's which a, is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things I try to do in the book is alternate the past and the present each chapter uh, or pretty close to each chapter so that people can just see how the world has changed without me ever saying so. <laughs> and um, even in this deep wilderness, they had just in like a year before, I believe it was, gotten a some type of satellite, <laughs> something, or the generator. That was it. They got a generator where they could and they had a TV in the village where people would, would gather around and watch. But one of the interesting things about that village was they don't have written records, but they have oral histories, and it's the way they preserve their past. When Fawcett came through in 1925, they were among the first white men the, the tribe had ever seen. And not surprising, this you know these bearded, pale, strange figures emerging out of the jungle was a moment of frisson for them and something that they had recalled and recorded. And they would pass down this oral history uh, for generations. And the interesting thing about that oral history is it includes details. You know, I'm a skeptic by nature, but it includes details that I only knew about because I had Fawcett's letters. So, for example, in the oral history, it describes Fawcett um, having a flute-like recorder. 
And I had Fawcett's letter to his wife, Nina, in England saying, I've brought this little thing so that, you know, in the solitude of the jungle, I won't go mad. And in the oral history, it describes him playing this. So it really was remarkably precise, and it did hold great clues to what had happened to Fawcett and his party. And the other thing about these oral histories, they're really, they're beautiful. Um, They're like these great Homeric epic poems, these wonderful rhythms. And that, for me, was one of the high points. We talked about the low point. That was one of the high points. (laughs) (laughs) And you also have no idea what you're going to find. So it's always wonderful when you, you know, the the trip had an element of madness, which I kind of describe in the book and this obsessive quality that seemed kind of irrational on my part. You know, most stories, you kind of know where you're going and what you're going to find. And this was one of these things where you just roll the dice. So when I discovered this, it was, you know, the Lost City of Z itself, without giving away what you actually come up with, you come up with more of a theory than, a, than an actual physical place. How did the anthropologists, how do they view your theory? This is a very fierce debate that is going on within the archaeological world. And um, for years, most people, the theory was that the Amazon really was this counterfeit paradise and that it could not sustain a large population. And without a large population, you couldn't have a complex or sophisticated society with divisions of labor and political hierarchies. Fawcett had relied upon these clues, and I kind of pieced these clues together and tried to show a theory. There really is mounting evidence that Fawcett was prescient and that the jungle really did contain these these ruins. This revolution in, in, in archaeology is happening so quickly. And if, a few years ago, I think people would have questioned it more. But now the movement is happening so quickly and the evidence is so over, beginning to be more overwhelming. And even though we're at this early stages of understanding what were these ancient civilizations and what were, what were they like, we still don't know that much about them. The, the percentage of the professional establishment, which now question this theory, is, is pretty small. I think I would, I would hate to put a number on it, but I think you're dealing with where it used to be 99% didn't think it was possible and 1% thought it was possible. I think now you're dealing much more in the percentage of like 80% of the establishment is moving towards believing in this stuff. They grilled you. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, they, they will question you. I mean, it's a fierce debate um, and it has great implications for both the nature of the Amazon and for what the Americas look like before Columbus. And in terms of my own theory, I really see myself as a reporter. What I try to do is report what I find out and be a skeptic and kind of sift through it and then present that as as, as, as accurately as possible. David Gran, let's move into the rest of your career. First off, uh, your mother, Phyllis Gran, is uh, a very well-known editor, been with Putnam, Penguin, Doubleday. So you grew up around writers. Uh, in an interview, you said that you knew Judy Bloom when you were a kid. Yeah, that's right. I say I was babysat by Judy Bloom. I don't know how much that is lore, but she was certainly around when I was a kid. <laughs> so there was always the idea that you could become a writer. Yeah, books were kind of touchstones in, in where I grew up. You know, the house was always filled with books and manuscripts, and my mom was kind of a ferocious reader. So it was one of these things where it wasn't ever conscious. No one ever said. I think in some ways my mom thinks of writing life is hard and knows all the kind of obstacles from a, in terms of making a living doing it. So I think in some ways she did point me in that direction. But I think being around all that and being around these writers, for me, stories have always been touchstones. I love stories. I mean, I, you know, just hearing stories. And there were always wonderful writers at the table who would tell great stories and talk about their books. Uh, you wound up at the uh, briefly as an editor at that New Republic it must have been a joy to become a staff writer at The New Yorker and find out that all of your dreams could be fulfilled. <laughs> when I grew up, there were more uh, novelists around the 
how. So I think trying to write fiction in some ways, you know, that was more the uh, the milieu I grew up with. Many were many were fiction writers. When I tried writing fiction, it was hard. I eventually needed a job, and I got a job. I just basically needed some money. <laughs> I got a job at the Hill newspaper covering Congress. It was my first job, full-time job in journalism. And then I went to the New Republic, and I was always covering Congress and things, but I kept kind of wandering off my beat and was doing covering mobsters and spies and various other subject matters. But the great thing about getting to The New Yorker was I've always had somewhat eccentric tastes and stories, and they're not the ones that quite know what the word to say, but they're not always fit the mainstream of what would go on a traditional, typical cover of magazines. And The New Yorker has really allowed me to pursue a story like this, as we said before, where most editors would say, you're out of your mind. <laughs> so how many stories are you required to write a year, you think? I do uh, three or four a year. I spend, it kind of depends. For example, um, usually I spend about three to four months a story. Now, when I did the McCain story on the presidential campaign, that one was a crash, and I for, you know, probably did that in a month. You never actually did speak with McCain. No, and I had spent a lot of time. I was actually really surprised. You talk about things change, and I kind of had this notion for that story. You have this idea in your head. It goes, okay, I'll do a story. At that point, I thought he was probably going to lose. I covered him in 2000 when I was back at the New Republic. I spent a lot of time with him, and uh, he was very open to the press, and you know, I would talk for hours. I remember when I first went out with him, I think it was just me and uh, David Brooks. It was just the two of us and McCain early in the primary in 1999. And, you know, he spent hours with him, chat with him. So I thought, well, I'll kind of document this, what it's like to lose something we've invested so much and spent time with him. And this time around, he was walled off in the front <laughs> run of his plane. It was just such a different atmosphere. And quickly, my notion of the story just collapsed when I got on the plane. <laughs> I was like, you're not going to give me a damn thing. I'm going to have to work for every scratch, every sentence out, of the, <laughs> sentence out of this piece. So I had to kind of come at the piece a different way, which I guess often happens. Well, I noticed that uh, the piece was devoid of any ideological perspective on your part. In working on that piece or the piece that you wrote uh, in 2004 on, on Mark Halpern, how easy or hard is it to do that? I mean, I don't know your politics mm -hmm. based upon those. I have no idea. I mean, mm -hmm. you could be a, an extreme leftist or a moderate. <laughs> I can't tell. <laughs> you know, often what I try to do is... I try to document phenomenons, and so I am, in that piece, I am documenting ideological decisions McCain made and changed and kind of reinvented himself in various ways, and I'm trying to show that, and I really see my job as much as possible to document it and show it and then let the readers conclude. For example, with the Halpern piece where he was doing the note, in that I was trying to show the consequences of what the note you know, and these kind of quick political reportage has kind of done to political coverage. And I thought it was in there, but I, I really just try to show it and then let the reader reach their conclusions. There is a feeling in reading the McCain piece that the general attitude, which was, is not really expressed that much in our mainstream media, but the attitude among the reporters was that there really was a dark side for whatever reason he went over to it. And I'm using that in a, in a moralistic sense. Yeah. I mean, the thing I, uh, the perspective I brought to that piece, and I did bring a perspective, which was I covered him in 2000, hung on with a lot of his aides, including a guy named John Weaver, who ran his campaign back then. 
McCain, you know, he'd always been conservative. In fact, I wrote pieces that tried to show that and showed how the press had kind of misrepresented a lot of his ideology back in 2000. He was not, they, they were not very happy with that piece when I did that. It was kind of the first kind of critical because it was very gushing pieces back then in the press about McCain. But there was a dramatic transformation, not just in terms of the way that campaign was run where the reporters are being shut out, because to me, those things, yeah, well, it makes my life personally difficult, but it has no effect on the nation. Right. But there was a real change where these guys like Weaver had been pushed out of the campaign. And Weaver himself said that the political process, he was the one who actually used that. Was it Weaver? Another aide had used it. I think it was Weaver uh, said, you know, the political forces, the primary, the Republican Party kind of pushed pushed him to the dark side. And that I tried to document this phenomenon that I don't think was that well known, which is that McCain, after the 2000 election, had really considered becoming an independent. He, he'd almost considered switching to the Democratic Party um, and that there was discussions, however tentative they were. And by the 2008 campaign, you would not have recognized any of those elements in that campaign. The, the choice of Palin, I read somewhere that that was foisted on him by James Dobson. I did a fair amount of reporting trying to peel that back because to me it was one of the most interesting things and it told you a lot about McCain and what the presidency would have yeah. been like. McCain, as best I can tell from talking to aides around him uh, because he didn't talk himself, was that he really wanted to pick Lieberman. He likes Lieberman. The thing about McCain is he's a characterologically driven person ideology is kind of, he's not always well thought out with him. I don't think he thinks deeply necessarily about policy. He thinks about character and he either likes people or he doesn't. And that's kind of what moves him. And he liked uh, Lieberman and um, he liked the idea that Lieberman was from the other party and represented to him that he wasn't just uh, in this straight party and that he was independent and maverick-like. And he liked that idea and he wanted him. And then there was a meeting held uh, with three of the top aides. There may have been another one there. And they said, look, you can't do this. They had been doing, and I spoke to other people, they had been sending out feelers about this. And the feelers were coming back saying, you can't do this. And when I say feelers, they were sending them out to other members of the party. What, this was before the convention. What would happen at the convention? And the aides, from, and so they were sending out feelers to people like Dobson and other uh, members of the party conservative apparatus and movement. And they were coming back to him. And they said, look, you can't do this. And in that meeting, they said, look, we can probably get you through the convention. But after that, all bets are off. In other words, we can we can probably get the nomination through the convention, but there'll be a huge fight on the floor. And he was very upset. And he's a he's a impetuous person. I think he he did pale and impetuously. I don't think he had fully thought out the implications. It was an important decision, not just because of what Palin's ideology was, because I think that reveals a lot about the Republican Party, but it also, I thought, was very important and significant in revealing McCain as a decision maker, because he made this decision. He really does have a fighter pilot's almost mentality and approach, which is high risk, impetuous. And I think he ended up with someone, I don't think he fully grasped what he was getting or his members. And I spoke to an aide, his aides, when I spoke after the election, a lot of them were very upset with Palin. The, the, the sense I got was that the moment he chose Palin, people like David Brooks ran for cover because they knew that, you know, a guy who's going to make a choice like that is not someone you want for president, no matter what, even if they agreed with him. It was a critical moment for people who had been not just Brooks, but people around McCain who had been close to McCain, who were part of that 2000 movement. They were kind of appalled. And they really believe he, he sold out in that moment, that he had wanted somebody else. And in that moment when he confronted 
powerful elements of his party, he caved. And, and that's those are direct words from them, words like cave, sold out. Those aren't my words. Those are their words. And I think they were pretty appalled. So I don't think it was just even the Brooks who were kind of more in this moderate wing of the conservative movement. But um, people who had been close to McCain were extremely uh, disappointed. Well, the other side of it is is that if he didn't choose someone like Palin, if it, even if it wasn't Palin, he would have lost the ground troops. And without the ground troops, right. Obama has it anyway. Well, that was one of the things I was trying to show in the piece. And now there are two ways you can interpret this. And now one of the things that Weaver spoke about in that story to me was he talked about these institutionalized pressures. And they really do exist. You do have to make it through the primary process. It's not a, it's not a um, laboratory experiment where you could be a candidate and you want to be president. Well, no, you actually have to go to these states and win in these conservative primaries. And so you got to move to the right. And everybody expected McCain to move to the right. What was surprising, though, and I think was very self-defeating in the end, was that after the primary, he continued to move to the right and probably would have lost anyways or it might not have worked. But two things happened um, when he went to the general election and picking Palin. He changed people's image of himself. He had always based his campaigns on character more than ideology. And people judged him on character. They said he's a war hero and he's got this independent streak and he's a maverick. When people thought of McCain, that's what they thought of. And he sabotaged that by seeming to change to go with the political currents of his party. And he continued to do that even after the primary, which was very surprising and, 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 and not successful. After the election, there seemed at that point to be a chance for him to redeem himself, but it almost seems as if he suddenly, instead of becoming at least one of the four, <laughs> you know. It, you know, I've been so, yeah. I, you know, it was interesting when I spoke to Bob Kerry for that story. Bob Kerry was a Democrat who's very close to McCain. Um, the Vietnam experience had forged a lot of strong relationships with other Vietnam veterans, and, and, and Kerry and McCain are extremely close. And Kerry told me, and he, he had a funny quote about Palin, and they called it a little shop of horrors that she was basically <laughs> taking over and eating eating McCain alive. But he, he really thought strongly that McCain would go back to the Senate and kind of resume working the center and kind of being a bridge. Very early on, he made an indication, kind of thought that was going to be the case, but that really hasn't been the case. So far, he, he, he does not seem to be kind of being that bridge that he's kind of continuing much more of the pattern out of the campaign. And I haven't covered it, so I don't know what the motivations are for them. You know, McCain sees the world in, in black and white. He sees things through character. He tends to demonize opponents, and he really demonized Obama. And I think it was one of the easier ways to rationalize some of the decision-making processes that he had made in the campaign. Well, if you're slowly changing your position subtly, but you believe the person you're trying to defeat is so bad and dangerous, a socialist or whatever it might be, it's easier to justify the decisions you're making. And so I don't know if, you know, in his mind, in this kind of almost Manichaean vision that he constructed in the campaign where they really saw Obama almost preposterously as this kind of so out of the mainstream uh, character that they tried to paint him as. Right. And um, I don't know if, you know, he's still, if that has infected his thinking. I, I, I haven't been around him since he's been back in the Senate, so I can't really say. But to be honest, it's, it has surprised me some. I did expect that he would, like Kerry suggested, kind of return uh, a little bit more to what he had been flirting with in 2002, 2003. It seems, David Grand, as we're talking, that I could see the emergence of an article maybe in, in eight months or ten months. 
Yeah, I mean, I I do, and I and and you probably would get more uh, in a lot of ways. I think a lot of people would be willing to speak to. I mean, one of the things on those presidential campaigns is, it's like you're banging your head against stone trying to crack these uh, things, and and people would be more willing to speak. But it's interesting, and it'll be very interesting to see. But I've been surprised. Like, I just saw the clip when he was at that press conference, and he or he was at that meeting, and he kind of. You know, talking about the, he 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 just he seems like he 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 sees his role as kind of being a thorn, and that 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 has surprised me. And I'd be very curious what a lot of uh, the people around him think. Yeah, and, and looking back on two, the two thousand eight election, from the perspective of someone who wants to read a story, it always struck me that the McCain Palin story, the story, and with all of its, uh, I think you you talk about it in Shakespearean terms almost. Yeah, the is. story is a fascinating story, oh, yeah. and I thought, the, and I think McCain's a. Fa- I mean, I thought the whole thing was Shakespearean. I mean, here to me, I mean, or mythic. I mean, and, and not to bring it back to Fawcett, but I'm very drawn to myths. I mean, Fawcett's story is almost like a mythic story. It has all the archetypal qualities of a myth and temptation. A man who eventually leads his son to die in pursuit of this thing, and the the McCain story to me had a lot of mythic elements. Um, a temptation for power and wanting something so badly. I mean, he had a decision. There was, there was a moment when he spoke with his aides and one of the aides, you know, he kind of said, well, you know, I don't want to be known as a kind of a noble loser. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing because it's been a while since I read that article. But but he said, you know, I'd rather I want to win. <laughs> and I'll, basically the implication was do what you got to do to help me win. And that seduction and that temptation and what it means. And, and the thing about McCain is unlike some people, it's self-evident when he's cognizant of when he's doing things. It's a little bit like Bob Dole. They're almost like you can always you can always kind of see when he's giving those interviews and he's just uncomfortable. And I mean, even those debates, I mean, he was, you know, you could just, the misery. And to be honest, that was the difference between 2000 when you got on the campaign. 2000 was like, they were having a, Ball. I mean, they were having a good time. And like 2000, he made these decisions and, you know, he's older. It was grueling, but they were miserable. He was not having fun. He was not enjoying himself because he was making all these decisions that I think he was con- he was cognizant of, um, at least at some level. It, it almost seemed in his um, concession speech that there were two things going on. Uh, number one, he seemed almost happy. I think he was. I think I think you know, and that was the McCain that I I did think you would see more of. I mean, and that was the McCain that you saw much more of in two thousand. Whether you disagree with him ideologically, because he really right. was conservative, but that kind of character, that kind of sense of you know, again, like I said, the McCain always thinks of himself, and it's kind of important to judge people how they judge themselves as a, as a kind of a, a character person. Like he sees himself not as an ideological figure. And it's why his ideology is a little bit scattershot and not always consistent. Kind of nobility and honor, it comes out of a military tradition is how he judges himself. And, you know, in that speech, you saw some of that sense of service to nation and that that right. is higher calling and I will reach out across the... Uh, but I spoke to people and, they, and I spoke to one person very close to him and said he knew he was losing and he was just relieved. Uh, I also got the, the the impression that he could finally say, oh, goodbye, Sarah. I know. Well, it's certainly his aides. I, I, I'll tell you. Can I tell this story? I think I can tell this story. I'm trying to remember how this person spoke to me it's because it's been a while. I'll be a little bit cagey about it. Okay. Um, this is uh, <laughs> an aide who I spoke with after the campaign had ended. I was trying to ask them about Palin and they're making their sentiments clear, but like through... And and the person ultimately said to me when I was asking him, you know, what were your true feelings? Were you happy with it? What do you think of her? And the person said, you know, this is like, it's like a donut right now. It's like a chocolate donut. And I really want to eat that donut, but I know I can't eat that donut. Meaning basically he wanted to 
just unload. <laughs> <laughs> but but it was trying to constrain himself. But you had a sense going back to your question. It wasn't just McCain. It was a lot of those. And clearly, you know, I, again, I'm trying to be as cagey as possible because right. it was it was a conversation where some things were on the record, but some things weren't. But this conversation of using the the, the ability to basically unload on her and say the true feelings kept referring to it as this as this donut that. The person just desperately wanted, wanted to eat and spill all the spill all the truth, which you just felt went far deeper than we basically know is what I'm saying. It's like right. so some of that came out, and uh, but I think that that's a wound that goes. I just got that sense that was a wound that went really deep. I almost felt too it was very hard because I you know you're up against deadlines. That was one of those ones where I felt like just one more day. And I just have one more day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a friend of mine very early on watched them and saw McCain looking at her ass and going, my God, he thinks it's his cha-cha girl. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's funny. She didn't travel with him. One of the other things that struck me is she didn't travel with him. You know, he still just traveled with Lieberman. And I thought that was very interesting. Like, I don't think they ever really developed. I think they had a perfectly fine rapport. I don't think it was, but I, they never developed. He, he didn't know her. He didn't know anything about her. He, this was an impetuous decision. He liked the idea she had been against Stevens or so he'd been told. And, it, you know, he just, it was a very impetuous, at least the way the people right. in that meeting told me he was upset. He couldn't make the decision he wanted to make. I think he did also realize, and he was somewhat grateful to her, that she did generate an enthusiasm that his campaign was not. I mean, one of the things that struck me on the last day I was traveling on that campaign, some of those events, I and mean, this is the day of the election or the day before the election, he was getting about 250 people, 300 people in cities, maybe 500,000 at most. And, you know, she was getting 20,000. To see how few people on those those last days was pretty shocking. But she was, you know, they had her out and she was getting all these people. But that was that carry image that she was kind of growing bigger and bigger. Bigger. <laughs> well, you know, you, know you, look, you also look at the fact that if he had chosen uh, Lieberman, that would have been quite a decrepit group. Of, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, I don't know if the you know Lieberman would have succeeded in his way. The other one he was very fond of was Ridge, and I think Ridge actually probably would have been successful in, in Pennsylvania, much more successful than Lieberman. Well, what about someone like Kay Bailey Hutchinson? It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Why? You know, she would have been a much more logical choice. When I was getting my list, you know, when you're trying to get who were the people, for whatever reason, she never sounded like she had made that final ridge was on it, uh, Lieberman. She never seemed uh, to be part of that. He, yeah, he wanted to do something out of the box. I mean, he liked that idea. The paradigm, which had been the Rovian paradigm, which was turn out your base, turn out your base, and that's how you win. And if you move the right, um, you can win these elections by 1%. And that's kind of what he did. Now... I actually think that paradigm for this past election no longer applied as much. Uh, Bush was so unpopular. It had been eight years, and Rove's strategy had not created a permanent majority. It was creating a permanent minority at this point. And so I, I was. I think, you know, it's in hindsight, but – and again, I don't know if the other strategy would have worked. The strategy of running McCain like a Rovian candidate I think was was a mistake. I mean, it was a fundamental mistake. I don't know if the other strategy would have won, would have won, but it was. I think it was a. It, it misconstrued the political electorate, and that this was not 2004, and it was not 2000. David Graham, what are you working on now? I'm working on a a death penalty case right now. I'm doing true crime, and this one has a real. It is a crime story, but it, it's a deeply moral story. You've been listening to a 2009 interview with David Graham about his book. The Lost City of Z, a 2017 adaptation of the book, is now on Amazon Prime. 
Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>